Please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us quickly review some other facets of our great salvation purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ by His death. He has told us at His table to remember His death until He comes. So we want to remember that death in all of its splendor by considering the terms the Bible uses to describe it. Let's take up facet number six. We have already considered justification, reconciliation, atonement, intercession, and representation as the second Adam. The sixth one we want to consider is sanctification. Sanctification is a religious term. Justification is a legal term. Reconciliation is a relational term. Sanctification is a religious term. It means to consecrate or dedicate someone or something to the use of God by making it holy and fit for God's use. Sanctification is a religious term meaning consecration and separation in holiness for God as deity. Remember, justification is a legal term that looks at God as a judge. Reconciliation was a relational term that looked, as God, looked at God as our enemy, and we were His enemies, and we were put at one again. Sanctification is to be made holy and separated for special use by God And we want to consider that it was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Israel was constantly taking steps to make themselves holy for God. Throughout the books of Exodus and Leviticus, there are rules given by which the priests, by which the people, by which the priests and people on special days could sanctify themselves, meaning to make themselves holy and consecrate themselves for some particular religious activity that day because God is holy what are the seraphim in heaven saying to him at this hour he is the thrice holy God his spirit is called the Holy Spirit his scriptures are called the Holy Scriptures he is holy in Numbers chapter 15 a man was caught picking sticks up on the Sabbath day And they went to the Lord and said, what should we do to him? And the answer from God was, stone him to death. And after that, I want a fringe of blue put on all of your garments. So that whenever you are walking in public, you will remind each other with this fringe of blue on your garments that I am holy and you stoned a man for picking up sticks. That's the last ten verses of Numbers chapter 15. God is holy. And you will never get in heaven without holiness. You will not see God without holiness. And Jesus purchased that holiness for us. Hebrews chapter 10. Many verses can be raised. You know that we have been chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. holy. There is God's purpose to make us holy. There is God's purpose to make us sanctified. Sanctification is the sixth facet we're looking at. It's a religious term. God is a holy God, 
And unless we are made holy, you'll never be in heaven. There is nothing unholy there. Everything that defileth is cast out of that place. There is nothing that is defiled that enters into heaven. But in Hebrews 10.10, we read this. Well, let's get verse 9 so that you'll know which will is being talked about. Because it tells us in verse 9, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. The first covenant goes away with its animal sacrifices. The second covenant with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ comes into force. Verse 10, By the which will, that is the will of God just mentioned, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Notice here it doesn't say, by the which will we are justified, by the which will we are reconciled. We have seen that in other verses. This place, the Holy Spirit, wants us to get the word sanctified because it's a religious term describing our being made holy because our holy God will only accept holy objects into heaven. But we are sanctified. We are made holy once for all by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. It says in verse 11, let's read a few verses here. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That was Israel. During the time of Reformation, their temple was still standing, the altar was still there, and their priests were daily ministering and doing no good at all. But this man, verse 12, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Those that he sanctified by the offering of his body, he made them holy. So they're fit for God and they're perfected forever by the death of Jesus Christ. We are remembering His death till He comes. When we take up the bread and we take up the cup this day, let us remember that Jesus died to justify us. Jesus died to reconcile us. Jesus died to put us at one again. Jesus died and intercedes for us forever. Jesus died to make us holy, to sanctify us. All these aspects of His death are what were purchased for us 2,000 years ago on Calvary's Hill. And we remember it once a month. We remember it every Lord's Day. We should remember it every day, what He did for us by His death. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and sanctification. And there are other places that speak of it as well. Jesus Christ has sanctified us and made us religiously holy and fit for the presence of God. Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 and look at another one. The four beasts and the four and twenty elders are singing here, representing all the saints. It tells us that in verse 8. And verse 9 tells us they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain 
and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. God has redeemed not every kindred, tongue, and people and nation, but God has redeemed men out of every tongue, kindred, people, and nation. We want to look at the word redeemed. It's another aspect of our salvation. Redeemed is an economic or a financial word, meaning to buy something back that is under the claim of another. In the Old Testament, if you had an ox or an ass or an animal that you wanted to keep, if it, and it had an offspring, the first offspring was always the Lord's. Whatever opens the matrix in the Bible was the Lord's. But if you wanted to keep it, you could redeem it. But you would have to offer a lamb in its place. See, God had a claim on that firstborn animal. And God had a claim on every firstborn man. And you had to redeem them by killing an animal in their place. God had a claim for your firstborn child. God had a claim on all the animals that opened the matrix of your beasts. And you were to give those to the Lord unless you were to redeem them. Which means you bought them back by killing someone else. By, or killing something else. Killing a lamb in its place. And there's a, there's a use of the word redeemed. God spoke of redeeming Israel out of Egypt. Egypt had a claim on them. They were Egypt slaves. They had put Israel in the best part of their land. They had given them jobs, bless their hearts. They had even given them a little straw on occasion to make their bricks. They, were, they had given them the privilege of building Pharaoh's tombs. But God said He redeemed His people out of that nation. And how, what was the price that was paid for them? The price of Egypt. He killed all the firstborn of Egypt and took their gold and their silver and bought His people out of Egypt. And it's called a redemption and a buying and a purchase about 50 times in the Bible. That was a huge transaction. They were under the claim of Egypt, but the Lord delivered them out of it and bought them, redeemed them, paid a price for them, the price of Egypt for His people Israel. But redemption to us is an economic term describing our purchase from the claims of God as our creditor. We owe God. The wages of sin is death. We are under the claim of His law. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And Jesus Christ, by dying in our place for our sins, redeemed us from that claim. There was a very real claim against every single one of us. But Jesus Christ has redeemed us from that claim by giving His own blood instead of ours. His own life instead of ours. So that we are freed from that claim that God had against us. That is what the word redemption means. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 where it said very plainly how we are redeemed and that it is an economic term, a financial term. When you redeem something, you buy it back. Oh, there's whole chapters. Like Leviticus 25. The whole chapter of Leviticus 25 is if, if you got so poor you had to sell some of your property, there were rules prescribing how you could go redeem your property, which means to buy it back. And it goes on and on and on. Maybe you were so poor you had to sell yourself as a slave. 
then other people could redeem you or you could redeem yourself if you saved up enough money. That's to buy yourself back from this claim that another had against you. God has a claim against us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us measure up. We are not valuable enough for God to care about. We are sinners in His sight. The foolish shall not stand in His sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. That's the claim He's got against us, our sins. But Jesus Christ died and bought us back from that claim. And the creditor himself sent the purchase price. This is the drama of salvation and it's glorious. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Peter 1, 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. God foreordained the Lord Jesus Christ to come and redeem us before the foundation of the world, but He was only made manifest 2,000 years ago in the days of the apostles. You can't buy your way into heaven. You're not redeemed by silver and gold. The Jews had a thing about silver and gold, remember? You could swear by the temple and it didn't matter. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, you were, you were held liable for that oath. Remember, remember their fascination and obsession with gold and silver. We still refer to that as a byword today when we refer to Jews. Did he, did they Jew you down? Ever heard? That's a byword. That's a byword from a group of people who are obsessed with money, and the Bible indicates it. And right here, he says, you have a vain tradition received from your fathers that gold and silver is of value. But you can't buy your way into heaven. Doesn't Psalm 49 tell us that the rich can give to God? There's no amount of money they can give to God for their brother. It's the precious blood of Christ. You know, gold and silver are precious metals. But the blood of Christ is more precious. It's far more precious. One is of no value at all. And the other is of infinite value with God. And that is how we were redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many other verses could be given. For God sent His... For God, Galatians chapter 4 puts it this way. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. They were bound, and the, the law had a claim against them that they had to die. But God sent Jesus Christ to redeem them from that claim. Right. Look at 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10. And let's look at another facet of our salvation. We've already considered sanctification. God made us holy by Jesus Christ's death, paying for our sins. The result was we are totally dedicated to go into heaven. We are totally consecrated, fit for the presence of God by being holy. There's so much that could be said. If you go back and you read the Old Testament, the priest would have to dip his thumb in the blood and put his thumb on various parts of his body and on various horns of the altar. All this activity with blood 
Because it was blood that sanctified Israel, that sanctified the altar, that sanctified the tabernacle, that sanctified the book of the law. They sprinkled the blood everywhere. But Jesus sprinkled His blood and has sanctified us, made us holy. And He's redeemed us. He's bought us back by His precious blood. And now He's been, according to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, He is the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is a mediatorial work. Someone going in between two parties that are at enmity with each other and bringing them back to peace. To propitiate means to render propitious. That's what it comes from. Propitious is to be favorably inclined toward a person. To appease a person. To conciliate. It's very close to being reconciled. But in the Bible, it's called propitiation. Someone coming between two parties and bringing them back to peace with one another. Favorably inclined toward one another. And Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. We had something between us and God. Our sins. Think back through your life. Take any one of them. Take all of them. Those sins separated between you and God. There was warfare there over those sins. But Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He has appeased God relative to those sins because He's put them away. And so we have the word propitiation for our sins when He died on the cross for us. You know, when you, go, when you look through the Bible and you're looking for the word propitiation, Jacob wisely, when he was traveling back to Canaan and he had 11 sons under the age of 12, 12 or under, he found out that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men. And so Jacob sent some gifts, drove after drove, to meet Esau. And his hope was that he could propitiate him before he met him. Jacob sent a propitiation. And it was all those gifts. And you know, Esau was happy to see him and Esau didn't care about the gifts. Why? Because his praying was a whole lot more important than his giving. His wrestling with the angel all that night was far more valuable in the matter of Jacob and Esau than the gifts that he gave. Esau and Jacob wept, wept on each other's necks and kissed and hugged each other. And Esau said, who's all this stuff? I don't need this, brother. I've got enough already. How's that? for? Is that did the Lord answer that prayer? Yes, amen. He did. That was called a propitiation. And He is the propitiation for our sins. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And look at another word that the Holy Spirit has chosen that has certain connotations in our mind and certain connotations in the Bible's mind, the Lord's mind, to help us grasp the full dimensions of salvation. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. Taylor, if some kidnapper was to kidnap you this week, 
He would take you and hold you captive someplace, and he would write your father a letter saying, I want a hundred thousand dollars, and if you don't give me a hundred grand, you'll never see your son again. That's kidnapping. Because you're a kid, right? You've been kidnapped. I'm just wanting you to think about this word. That letter that goes to your father and says, I want a hundred thousand before you can see your son again, that's called a, a ransom letter or a ransom note because it's demanding a payment called a ransom. Several years ago, I preached to you from Job chapter 33 that, where we read, I have found a ransom. I told you about Charles Lindbergh Jr., who was kidnapped from his father's home and created a great stir in our country 70 years ago. A ransom. Would you want your dad to make that payment? Or would you want him to say that's just too much? I liked your answer. (laughs) Brethren, we are captives and we have been kidnapped. We are prisoners of the devil through the law of God. We are in his palace where we are held captive and we need a ransom price paid to deliver us. And that ransom price is the precious blood of Christ. I know we keep coming back to the same thing. But all these different terms are used to get our attention. I got Taylor's attention. He'll be telling his mom and dad for the next two days what Pastor Crosby said about him. And I hope your dad would pay. And the Lord's paid for us. The Lord paid the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, as the ransom. Look at what Jesus said there in the last part of that verse. 2028, even as He came to give His life a ransom for many. Do you know what it took to get us delivered from the claims of God's law and the captivity that we were held under by sin? The death of Jesus Christ. That was the ransom. It was no hundred thousand. That's nothing. It was the death of the Son of God. Called a ransom in the Bible. We could go to other places. I could take you all over the Bible and show you about the ransom. We've been ransomed, brethren. A ransom has been paid for us. You say, well, what if the price had been too steep? Or what if my dad can't pay that much? You're in trouble. Our dad can pay. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. And our dad is willing to pay. And in fact, our dad had planned the whole thing from the beginning because he wants us to be happy children. He wants us to praise him through eternity for what he's done for us. So he let us get ourselves into trouble in the Garden of Eden, and then he delivered us from it by sending his own son as the ransom for our souls. A price has been paid. I liked your answer. You would want your dad to pay. And our dad has paid for us. Doesn't that put it in a different light? Who chose the word ransom? That isn't my word. That's God the Holy Spirit's word. He wants us thinking about salvation from every angle possible. Ephesians chapter 1. This is a simple one. We've already read it this morning in Psalm 32, but we'll look at it just very briefly. Ephesians chapter 1. We love verses 3 through 6. We love all the verses, but 3 through 6 is one long sentence that is certainly beautiful that tells us that all spiritual blessings, and we're going through them today, 
are in Christ Jesus, and we were put in Christ Jesus by being chosen in Christ Jesus, being predestinated in Christ Jesus. We're looking at verses 4 and 5 when I say these words. To the praise of the glory of His grace in verse 6 and so forth. Then in verse 7 it says, In whom we have redemption through His blood. We've already covered that one. It's called redemption and it's through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. One of the aspects of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. Criminals can be forgiven crimes. Debtors can be forgiven debts. We have been forgiven sins. God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ. God cannot forgive just by saying, forgive, forgive that sinner. There has to be a payment. His justice demands it of him. But Jesus Christ paid the price, and it was by His blood we are forgiven. And so that is one of the facets of salvation. When we think about the Lord's Supper, as we come to it, God has forgiven you. Have you ever been in trouble with your father? Or been in trouble with a teacher? Or been in trouble with someone else? And been forgiven? When you said, I'm sorry that I did that. And they said, you're forgiven. Were those sweet words to you? Were those sweet? God says you're forgiven. You're forgiven. It's over. You're forgiven. Those, are, those should be sweet words to us. And that is the tenth facet of salvation. And of course, you know it's mentioned in many places We read it in Psalm 32, and it's here in Ephesians 1, 7. If you flip over a few pages to Colossians 2, 13, let me read you another one from the Holy Spirit. Colossians 2, 13. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What is your quickening based on? How are we ever born again? Because we've already been forgiven all our trespasses. God the Holy Spirit would not regenerate someone that had not already been forgiven. How could you have a regenerated, unforgiven person? He has forgiven us all trespasses and then quickened us. Let's go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. If you think I'm going too fast, and I wouldn't mind a bit if you do, then that means you can go home by writing these down and explore them yourself in your Bible and meditate upon them. They're the, they're the facets of a diamond. And if you turn it in the light of God's glorious grace, you see different aspects of it. And we should be rejoicing at each one. Amen. This one is called, and I mentioned it last Sunday, the doctrine of satisfaction. You read Numbers chapter 35 last night because I wanted you to see in those cities of refuge There was to be no satisfaction for murderers. Did you read that? I think it's verses 31 and 32. No satisfaction for a murderer. There was no price you could pay to unload a murderer from his sins. He was to be put to death. And if a man that was a manslayer, he wasn't really a murderer. But there was still an avenger of blood out there. If he left his city of refuge before the high priest died, could the avenger of blood still kill him? Indeed. No satisfaction. You were to stay there as long as that high priest was alive. Now, I don't preach from types and shadows. All of you know that about me. But I still enjoyed reading about the fact that while the high priest lived, he had safety 
in his city of refuge. But we have a high priest that lives forever. And our city of refuge is that we are in Christ Jesus our Lord forever. But Isaiah 53 says this in verse 11. He, and we understand that to be God the Father. Isaiah 53:11, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Salve the, the, the travail of his soul. Who suffered on the cross? Who went through grief on the cross? Who was bruised on the cross? Who was chastened on the cross? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. No satisfaction for a murderer. And I'm speaking to a whole congregation of murderers. Every single one of you are a murderer in the sight and measurement of God. If you have ever been angry with anyone without a cause, if you have ever called anyone a name without a cause, you're guilty of murder according to Matthew chapter 5. We're all murderers. And there's no satisfaction for us. There is nothing that can be paid to satisfy the holy God for taking another person's life or taking their character, or taking their reputation because of our yapping mouth about them. But he saw the travail of his soul. He saw Jesus Christ suffering on the cross where we should have been suffering. That should have been our travail. That should have been your travail. But he saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. It was enough. We've already, been, we've already seen that in several other respects. Several other facets. But here it is again. He was satisfied. No satisfaction can be given on earth, but there was satisfaction provided from heaven. He saw the travail of his soul, which should have been your soul. And he was satisfied. Are you satisfied that he's satisfied? I am. You know what the Bible says? It says it's time for us to eat the fat things. It's time for us to rejoice and be glad. Right. He's been satisfied. What more do you want? You say, well, how could such a holy God be satisfied for all my sins? Because of the value of the sacrifice that was made. Because of the terror of the travail of His soul. It's what Jesus did for us that satisfied. Isaiah chapter 40. That satisfaction. Thank you, Lord, for being satisfied with what Jesus Christ did for us. It's not that He's satisfied with us. He is satisfied with Him for us. He saw the travail of His soul and was satisfied. He doesn't see anything from you to get satisfied about. He saw it all from Jesus Christ for us. Isaiah chapter 40, Comfort ye, verse 1, Comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Here's comfort Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Then it goes on to describe the ministry of John the Baptist. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. What we want to focus on for just a minute is about Jerusalem. Her iniquity is pardoned. Pardon is a facet of salvation. Look at all these different words that the Holy Spirit... This isn't my word. This is God the Holy Spirit's word. What is a pardon? If you go home and punch into Google, 
Clinton pardons. It'll list every single person that he pardoned. There's armed bank robbers. There's money launderers. There's cocaine dealers. There's a whole long list. It gives their name, their crime, where they were, where they were uh, confined in prison. But just think about the power of a pardon. The president can have a man come into him and say, Sir, this person is asking for a pardon. We believe it deserves your consideration. He hears for five minutes or, or 60 minutes the case of a man that's appealing and begging to be pardoned. And you know what a pardon is? It's a signature of someone in authority saying, that man is free from all charges. He's completely innocent before the claims of the law. He walks. I don't care what the courts have decided so far. I don't care. I, with the authority given to me, pardon this man. Governors do it. You know, there's quite a stir in the state of, I think it's South Dakota. It's one of the Dakotas. I, South Dakota, because that's all private. No one even knows about it. And the governor gets to do it. That's what we, that's a privilege that we give to men in high authority that if some case gets through our judicial system and is, and warrants another look by one party, they can pardon. You might have 20 years to pay. If that signature is applied in a pardon for you, you walk. All charges are lifted. And look what it says here. Her iniquity is pardoned. Now, God doesn't pardon willy-nilly. God pardons through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because it says, She hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And how, and how did she receive? We received payment through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sins were punished in Him. But it's called a pardon in the Bible. Her iniquity is pardoned. Oh, can you imagine sitting confined in a cell and you're there wrongfully? We weren't anywhere wrongfully. We were confined under the law of God and sentenced to eternal death, the second death, in the lake of fire, and we deserved it. And the God of heaven said, pardon them. Because my son Jesus Christ will take all the wrath and punishment for them upon himself. So we're pardoned. That's number 12. Look at Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Job 9 and verse 32. Job is complaining about his predicament. And he said about God, For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. God and I are so different from each other and so far apart, it's impossible for us to come together and find any agreement. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. A daysman. Now, we don't know what a daysman is because we don't use that word, and what it is is a mediator. It's a lawyer. It's an attorney. It's an arbiter. It's an arbitrator. It's a reconciler. It's a go-between. Those are all the words we use. But Job is saying, I need one of these mediators, one of these go-betweens, who can put his hand with God and put his hand on me. and You know, like we would do with children. Boys, let's end this right now. And I don't mean to knock their heads together. I mean, boys... 
Let's end this squabbling right now. You two are fighting with each other. You're unhappy with each other. Now kiss and make up. That sounds a whole lot better. Doesn't it, guys? Austin and Alex, kiss and make up? Or would you like your heads knocked? I don't mean it that way. I want you to, I want you to think about the verse. A hand on both who says, let's, get, let's settle this difference. This antagonism and enmity and hatred that's here between these two parties. This great difference between us. I wish there was someone between God and me, Job is saying. And we have someone between God and us. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is God's Son. He is made in our flesh. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Can He relate to us? He's God's Son. Can He relate to God? He's a perfect mediator. And so mediation is facet number 13 that we never want to forget. The Catholics make it Mary. The Catholics make it saints. The Catholics make it priests. We have one mediator. There is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Don't ever let somebody destroy the identity of Jesus of Nazareth because He is a man. He is not some eternal Son. He is the Son of God by His manhood, by His human nature that came out of Mary. That's what made Him a mediator. He is God and man. He is both. He can relate to God. He can relate to man. Do you remember Israel? They told Moses, we do not want to hear God anymore from Mount Sinai. He's too loud. He's too terrifying. We want someone like you to speak to us. The Lord said to Moses, they've asked for a good thing. I'll raise up a prophet like unto you. And they better listen to what he says. Because they'll be blessed if they obey. But he will destroy all the rebellious from among the people. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the prophet that was promised to come. Because he was the mediator that came between God and men. He was a daysman. He was God and he was man. He was loved by God. And we know he is an all-sufficient Savior for us. He is a perfect go-between. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might have all these facets of salvation, that we might remember them at your table this day. Without your grace and without your Son, we are without hope, without God in this world. Ephesians chapter 1. We want that sentence this time. The long sentence from 3 through 6. Follow with me. We love these words. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. The fourteenth facet that we want to consider today is acceptation. 
being accepted. The issue is not in the Bible. And there isn't a verse that says, accept Jesus. Not one. The Bible teaches that God had to accept us through Jesus. God had to accept Jesus on our behalf. And that's what it says right there in the last clause of verse 6. God hath made us accepted in the Beloved. It's called the doctrine of acceptation. The facet of salvation where God accepts us. And God accepts us because we are in the Beloved who pleased Him in His life, who pleased Him in His death, and who is at His right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. We are accepted at the cross, and we are accepted forever. Because God hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That's the acceptation that is taught in the Bible. This idea that you have to accept something in order to be accepted with God, God accepts us by the virtue of what Jesus has done for us. What a difference! We don't get into heaven because we've done any accepting. We get into heaven because God accepted us through Jesus Christ. And this is a facet of salvation. You are accepted. Have you ever been considered an outsider? Have you ever been put at arm's length in any in anything in life? Have you ever been denied full recognition or acceptance? Here we are. Here we're talking about heaven. Here we're talking about God's favor. And He accepts us because we're in the Beloved. Why is He called the Beloved? Because that's how we get accepted. Because He is God's well-beloved Son. And as long as we're in Him, we are well-beloved in Him along with that Son. We are made accepted in the Beloved. Let's deal with the last one. Brethren, it is one thing. It's one thing if God would have justified us. Delivering us from the penalty of the law and making us righteous. We wouldn't go to hell. Would that be worth celebrating the rest of eternity? That we're not in the lake of fire where we belong? It would be. But He's done a whole lot more than that. He's reconciled us. He's put us at one. He's accepted us. He's fully satisfied. He's paid a ransom for us. He's pardoned us, but it gets better. And here's the last one. It's 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. This is unbelievable. And if we didn't know, if we didn't have this word, and if we didn't have this facet to remind ourselves, we would lose this in just the word salvation. The word salvation wouldn't be good enough. But because we know this word, we wrap it all up in the word salvation. So when we talk about being saved, we talk about all these things. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, this is worth looking at. That's what the word means. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. This is a facet of salvation. God did not only save us from the lake of fire, He did not only justify us, He did not only reconcile us, pardon us, pay a ransom for us. He adopted us. 
We're in court. The great God is the judge of all. He judges us righteous. He delivers us from the consequences of our sins and saves us from the lake of fire. And as we read through those facets of salvation, we think, glory to God. He sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of my sins so that I don't have to pay that penalty. But it is much better than that. The judge sitting on that throne says, I want to adopt that criminal. Not only do I want to pay for all of his sins through the death of my son, Jesus Christ, but I want to adopt them to be my sons. And I want to take them out back and show them where I live. And it's called our eternal inheritance. This is, this is too good to be true. But it's true because it's in the Bible. Beloved. Beloved. Now are we the sons of God. We are the sons of God with the death of Jesus Christ. Were you paying attention? We were back there in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5 where it said, having predestinated us unto the Adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. We were predestinated to be adopted as the children of God by Jesus Christ, paying the adoption fee for us. Because we were condemned criminals, Jesus lifted the condemnation. We were pardoned by God, and not just pardoned. I want to make them my sons. The angels desire to look into this. Not even the good angels, not even the elect angels, the holy angels as they're called, are the sons of God in the sense that we're the sons of God. You say, am I really a son of God? Yes. What will I inherit? God and everything He has to give. How much? On On what level is my inheritance? A joint heir with Jesus Christ. What more could you ask for? This is all wrapped up in the word salvation. But the Holy Spirit chose a whole lot of words for us to know. If we go back to Galatians chapter 4, where it says, In the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We are the sons of God by Jesus Christ's death for us. Those are the 15 facets of salvation to help us think about what the blood and the bread, the cup, and the bread actually represent for us this day. What did Jesus Christ accomplish with His death? He pardoned us. He paid the ransom that we knew we could never pay. He reconciled us. He put us at one. He represented us as the second Adam to undo what the first Adam did. He has pro- he's been the propitiation to appease God. God is fully satisfied. God is now our friend because we've been reconciled. And above all, We are the sons of God. The sons of God. He's not going to lose a single one of His children. And He's going to bless them with His own presence and all the blessings of heaven and all spiritual blessings that are in Christ for eternity. That is what Jesus did by His death. And we want to remember that death until He comes because He knows how great it is. We should know how great it is. And we should want to remember it. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.